0: When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Health Lock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com.
1: More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
2: He has the smarts.
0: Don't forget to leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us beat the big tech algorithm and the trolls. For those of you that haven't heard, we started a new video podcast called Fam Boogie that you can watch exclusively at redpilledamerica.com. All you have to do is become a backstage subscriber. Fan Boogie is the place where we help you bypass the entertainment gatekeepers. We talk about pop culture, woke Hollywood, and great movies, TV shows, and podcasts, as well as guide you towards content that the Hollywood gatekeepers try to bury. If you want to become a backstage subscriber, you can get ad-free access to our entire back catalog of audio documentaries as well as Fan Boogie. Just visit redpilledamerica.com and click join in the top menu. That's redpilledamerica.com and click join in the top menu. Now on with the show. Something new is now lurking amongst us at all times. They're called algorithms artificial intelligence, chatbots, search rankings, online recommendations. Regardless of their branding, algorithms appear to have a growing influence on American lives.
4: Algorithms are taking over the world.
5: You're being subtly manipulated by algorithms that are watching everything you do
6: constantly. There's a lot of argument that algorithms cause arguments and cause strife. TikTok's algorithm
3: can influence the thinking and the minds of,
0: of US youth. With algorithms popping up in nearly every avenue of modern society, it begs the question, are algorithms controlling American lives? I'm Patrick Carelci.
7: And I'm Adriana Cortez.
0: And this is Red Pilled America, a storytelling show.
7: This is not another talk show covering the day's news. We are all about telling stories.
0: Stories Hollywood doesn't want you to hear.
7: Stories the media mocks. Stories about everyday Americans that the globalists ignore.
0: You could think of Red Pilled America as audio documentaries, and we promise only one thing the truth. Welcome Welcome to to Red Pilled -Pilled America. America.
7: In technical terms, an algorithm is a step-by-step action to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations. They've been around at least as long as mathematics. In 1800 BC, ancient Babylonian clay tablets displayed algorithms to explain algebraic procedures, and they've been used by human problem-solvers and troublemakers ever since. The word algorithm began entering the American lexicon with the introduction of the personal computer but it wasn't until the arrival of the internet that algorithms started to noticeably impact our daily lives. Today they seem to be in every crevice of modern existence. Search online for fitness tips and an algorithm will deliver an endless stream of nutritional supplement ads in your social media feeds. Watch some Joe Rogan interview clips on YouTube and Google's algorithm will recommend that you watch videos of the many guests he's had on the show chat with an online retail support staff and chances are you're actually communicating with an algorithm. All of these applications may appear benign, even helpful, but some believe that algorithms are playing a much more nefarious role in our daily lives.
4: We are creating intelligent systems
8: that are part of our everyday life and very few people are getting to make the
5: decisions about how they work.
7: With these bits of code being nearly ubiquitous, it begs the question, are algorithms controlling our lives? To find the answer, we tell the story of how Netflix survived a battle with perhaps the most powerful company in the world, using just a comedian and an algorithm. You may think big tech holds all the cards in our brave new world, but you hold more power than you realize.
0: early October, 2021, when a legendary funny man launched his new special.
9: I personally am not afraid of other people's freedom of expression. I don't use it as a weapon. It just makes me feel better. And I'm sorry if I hurt anybody, et cetera, et cetera, yada, 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 everything I'm supposed to say.
0: Five years earlier, Dave Chappelle signed a deal to produce comedy specials for streaming giant Netflix. He was reportedly getting paid a whopping $20 million per episode. By early October 2021, he'd already produced five, and his fans were eagerly awaiting the final installment in his series. The building anticipation was understandable. Dave Chappelle was, and is, considered one of the greatest comedians of all time, an honor bestowed on him by his fellow comics.
6: Look, he's clearly the most popular comedian on planet Earth. He's number one. He's clearly one of the greatest comedians that's ever lived. Clearly.
10: Dave! In my opinion, you're the GOAT. In my opinion, your last special has allowed you to surpass the Richard Pryor. In
0: my opinion. His peers hold him in such high regard because Dave Chappelle is willing to venture into topics that most mainstream comics won't dare tread.
9: I had read in the paper that Caitlyn Jenner was contemplating posing nude in an upcoming issue of Sports Illustrated. And I know It's not politically correct to say these things, so I just figured, f*** it, I'll say it for everybody else. Yuck.
0: Now, in delivering jokes like that, it's clear to see that Dave Chappelle does benefit from a bit of a privilege. As a black comedian, he has the flexibility to address controversial topics in a way that a white male comic cannot. So in his final Netflix special, entitled The Closer, debuted on October 5th, 2021, No one imagined there was a joke that could seriously put Dave Chappelle in jeopardy of being cancelled. That is, no one except Dave himself. ¶¶ Starting from the first installment of his Netflix series, the funny man had taken comic jabs at the LGBTQ movement.
9: Stewart educates me about this movement. You know what I mean? I didn't even know about it. He told me it's called L B G T Q. I was like, "What the f- is the Q? Does that even make sense?" Q turns out Q is like the vowels. That is sometimes why. It's for gay dudes that don't really know they're gay, you know what
0: I mean? Jokes like these weren't mean-spirited. They were just funny. And each special seemed to come back to this same topic.
9: Everybody's mad about something. Recently, I got attacked online by some gay bloggers, and it hurt my feelings.
0: By the end of his second special, he'd already sparked the ire of one particular letter in this alphabet movement, and he expressed it in
9: his next show. You know who hates me the most? The transgender community. Yo, yeah, these m- I mean, I didn't realize how bad it was. These motherfuckers. I was really mad about that last Netflix special.
0: As the series progressed, Dave Chappelle dug a deeper hole for himself. By his fifth installment, he acknowledged that transgenders had just about had enough of his brand of comedy.
9: People be surprised. I have friends all kinds of letters. Everybody loves me, and I love everybody. I got friends who are L's, I got friends who are B's, and I got friends who are G's. But the T's hate my guts. And I don't blame them. It's not their fault, it's mine. I can't stop telling jokes about these. I don't want to write these jokes, but I just can't stop.
0: Apparently, a certain segment within the alphabet movement didn't appreciate Dave's jokes. But the comedian didn't care. By his final Netflix special, The Closer, he made them the central theme of his
9: show. I'd like to start by addressing the LGBTQ community directly. I want every member of that community to know that I come here tonight in peace.
0: He then proceeded to deliver one LGBTQ joke after another including one that wove in a story about a rapper named Baby that had recently been canceled for disparaging gays.
9: Baby was the number one streaming artist until about a couple weeks ago. Took a nasty spill on stage and said some, uh, said some wild stuff about the LBGTQ community during a concert in Florida. Now, you know I go hard in the paint, but even I saw that. It was like, the Baby. Ooh! He pushed the button, didn't he? He pushed the button. Punched the LBGTQ community right in the Aids. Can't do that. But I do believe, and I'll I'll make this point later, that that the kid made a, a very egregious mistake. I will acknowledge that. But, you know, a lot of the LBGTQ community doesn't know the baby's history. He's a wild guy. He once shot and killed him in Walmart. Nothing bad happened to his career. Do you see where I'm going with this? (laughs) In our country, you can shoot and kill it. But you better not hurt a gay person's feelings.
0: The point was clear. According to Dave Chappelle, In modern culture, you can't upset the alphabet crew. But it was all said and fun. The comedian was doing what he does, making people laugh with no boundaries. Dave's approach is why he's the most popular comic on the planet well when his final special hit Netflix, the media took Dave Chappelle to task, claiming that the alphabet movement was livid.
8: Chappelle's comments about the transgender and LGBTQ plus communities have outraged many who are now calling for the special to be removed.
11: Words have consequences and people with platforms like Mr. Chappelle's have a higher responsibility to be aware of that and to recognize that what they say leads to actions by others.
4: Is there potential harm that comes from this? Uh, Absolutely. Is Dave contributing to the national conversation that would otherize trans people and lead to situations where they cannot walk down the street without being threatened and or killed, which happens all the time? Absolutely, he's contributing to that.
7: And the National Black Justice Coalition is calling on Netflix to remove the special from the streaming service.
8: Glad weighing in, tweeting Dave Chappelle's brand has become synonymous with ridicule trans people and other marginalized communities. And Jacqueline Moore, the executive producer of Dear White People streaming on Netflix, says she won't work with the streaming giant as long as they continue to put out and profit from blatantly and dangerously transphobic content. No comments so far from Chappelle or Netflix.
0: As the controversy began to get traction, the media started to hone in on one person, the co-head of Netflix, Ted Sarandos attempting to pressure him into taking down Dave's special. Mr. Sarandos was forced to respond.
7: In an internal memo first obtained by The Verge, the company's co-CEO writing, we don't allow titles on Netflix that are designed to incite hate or violence, and we don't believe the closer crosses that line. Netflix
3: says they stand by Dave, they will not be removing his content.
0: In response, the media spun up the drama, inviting trans activists on their platform to amplify their outrage.
9: As a white person, you don't get to tell us what is racist and what is not racist.
0: the co-CEO of Netflix backing Chappelle, the conflict got raised up a notch.
7: Today, a group of transgender employees at Netflix announcing plans to stage a walkout next week.
3: October 20th is the date when trans employees of Netflix are planning a walkout in protest of statements made by their company's co-CEO in support of Dave Chappelle's latest comedy special, The Closer. Organizers of the Netflix walkout have accused the streaming giant of quote, repeatedly releasing content that harms the trans community and continually failing to create content that represents and uplifts trans content.
7: One of the employees, trans software developer Tara Field, had openly questioned Netflix's decision to air the special, tweeting, promoting turf ideology, which is what we did by giving it a platform yesterday, directly harms trans people.
0: With the media hyping the employee walkout, another Netflix comic came out in Dave's defense.
6: And if you get down to Dave Chappelle's real feelings, he's a lovely person. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. He loves everybody. He's not a hateful soul. He's beyond jealous. He's just a guy who loves this art form called stand-up comedy. And he tries to do his best navigating through this world of talking about things and saying outrageous things that get huge laughs or placating really sensitive groups that feel like they're in a protected class and they equate any jokes with hate. And this is where they're wrong. Like I'm telling you that Dave Chappelle does not hate anyone or anything.
0: But even with the cover, the co-CEO of Netflix started to feel the heat and signs of a backpedal began to surface.
1: Having initially defended Dave Chappelle and the show's popularity, the streaming behemoth has since softened its stance in the face of a swathe of public criticism. Netflix
8: co-chief executive officer Ted Sarandos said he screwed up his efforts to communicate with employees who were upset over the closer of a recent comedy special by Dave Chappelle. What I should have led with in those emails was humanity, Mr. Sarando said in an interview Tuesday evening. I should have recognized the fact that a group of our employees was really hurting. Mr. Sarando said his remarks on content not causing real world harm was also an oversimplification and lacking in humanity.
0: The next day, the upset Netflix employees delivered on their promise.
8: The blowback to Dave Chappelle's latest comedy special, produced by Netflix, has reached a boiling
10: point. Tonight, Netflix employees walking out of the company's Hollywood office
0: after weeks of internal backlash.
7: If your satire is punching down, you are being a bully.
0: Only a few dozen out of thousands of Netflix employees actually walked out but to increase the optics, they were met by outside alphabet comrades, and the media hyped the protest.
1: Around 100 people have protested outside Netflix headquarters in California over the broadcast of a comedy special by Dave Chappelle.
7: I'm out here because Dave Chappelle is harming our kids. He doesn't realize that the speech that he's putting out there is harmful. It's harmful to children. It's harmful Netflix employees staged this walkout at about 10.30 this morning over the new, now controversial, The Closer on the streaming service. Those protesting Netflix's decision to release it say it ridicules transgender people. They say this is part of harmful content that negatively impacts vulnerable communities and is unethical entertainment. We didn't care what
6: Dave Chappelle was doing until you come for our community.
0: A small counter-protest defending Chappelle arrived as well.
5: America. Free
10: speech, and I love all these people at free speech as well. I'm glad we can have a discussion.
0: The angry Netflix employees, who'd been arguing for weeks that their lives were in danger because of Dave's jokes, proceeded to physically accost one of the counter protesters. Why are
9: you breaking my sign? <laughs>
6: breaking my sign. <laughs> Don't you have free speech rights. <laughs> Don't you have free speech rights. <laughs> for all <is> you. <laughs> oh, they're
10: such a Protest organizers have released a list of demands, but it's unclear what the company's next steps will be. I think that next necklace is gonna have to put its money
6: where its mouth is. This specific block of employees are galvanized to continue to hold them accountable.
10: A controversy unfolding within the media giant, forced to listen to its workers.
0: But in the end, Netflix co CEO Ted Sarandos did what few in his position have mustered the strength to accomplish. He stuck by Dave Chappelle and kept his special on the streaming service. And if you listened carefully enough, a hint of the reason why seeped out into the media.
10: In internal communications with employees, Netflix CEO Ted Sarandos argued that the special was popular with subscribers. <laughs>
0: To most observers, the entire affair appeared to be just another battle in the ongoing culture war. But it was much more than that. What the public had just witnessed was a new type of conflict. It was not your standard cultural skirmish. It was actually a battle between two algorithms. One created by Netflix and the other crafted by perhaps the most powerful corporation on the planet. This dramatic affair brought to the surface a conflict that's invisibly underway all around us. A conflict where algorithms battle for control of American culture. And the only promise is that it will escalate in the coming years. To fully understand the significance of the struggle, we have to explore the creation of these two algorithms, one created by the likes and desires of the people, and the other crafted by a social architect looking to manipulate American culture.
10: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Life is short. It's important to surround yourself with people you love. Do the things that make you feel happy, and if you're me, eat delicious licorice. I've got the latter covered thanks to fresh and delicious licorice from The Licorice Guy. If you're an avid listener of RPA, then you know that licorice is my jam, and that it does not get any better than the gourmet licorice made by the licorice guy. They have a great selection of flavors to choose from, like red, blue raspberry, black, and green apple, just to name a few. The freshness of their licorice is unlike anything you've ever tasted in licorice before. If you haven't tried the Licorice Guy yet, then you're living a life unfulfilled. Trust me, you will not regret it. What I also love about the Licorice Guy is that it's an American family-owned business. We're big proponents of buying American and supporting American workers. Right now, Red Pilled America listeners get 15% off when you enter RPA15 at checkout. Visit LicoriceGuy.com and enter RPA15 at checkout. That's LicoriceGuy.com.
7: Welcome back to Red Pilled America. I'm Adriana Cortez.
0: We knew from
8: day one that eventually you'd be downloading movies or streaming movies. And the trick was, how do you build a business that will keep you sustained until that moment comes?
7: That's Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix. Mark helped give birth to an idea that would eventually become one of the most dominant players in Hollywood. And it was no small feat. Tinseltown is notorious for its barrier to entry. When Netflix first started its streaming service, the major film studios were the same outfits that practically stretched back to the silent film era. Nearly every attempt by an independent studio to break the Hollywood oligopoly had failed. But Netflix was able to breach this seemingly insurmountable wall, and they did it with an algorithm. Mark Randolph's road into Hollywood was atypical. The guy who really
11: assembled the concept for Netflix was this guy named Mark Randolph, and he's a marketing genius.
7: That's Gina Keating, author of Netflix: the epic battle for America's eyeballs.
11: He'd never done any kind of entertainment except when he was a kid. His first job, he was working at this place called Cherry Hill Music and trying to figure out like how to sell song sheet music
7: to people. After Cherry Lane Music, Mark continued working in the direct mail marketing industry, selling online catalogs for computer parts, things of that nature. He'd
11: send it out and then, you know, he would try to get them to to buy more.
7: He started to become fascinated with the process of using computer software to track the buying behavior of his customers. Mark would eventually co-found a small tech company.
8: It was a really geeky little startup I was doing with two friends of mine. It was called Integrity QA, and we ended up selling the company and we ended up going to work for this much, much bigger company.
7: That company was Pure Atria, another software outfit. It was headed by a man named Reed Hastings, a mathematician. At the time of the acquisition, Reed happened to live in Santa Cruz, the same town as Mark. The two began carpooling to work. In the summer of 1997, Reed Hastings' company was acquired by an even bigger software company, Reed and Mark were quickly informed that after a brief six-month transition period, they'd be out of jobs. The two carried no hard feelings. Mark received a golden parachute, and Reed came into a lot of money. His company was bought for a reported $849 million in stocks, making Reed Hastings a very rich man. Reed was ready to hang up his entrepreneurial coat, but Mark still had the bug. Again, Mark Randolph.
8: Now Reed Hastings, he did not want to start another company. He instead decided he wanted to change the world of education. So he was going to go back to school and get a higher degree, but he wanted to keep a hand in the startup game. And so we decided that we would do it this way, that we'd come up with an idea together, that he'd be my angel investor, he'd put the money in, that I would start the company, I'd hire the people, I'd run the company, and off we'd go.
7: but they weren't going anywhere without an idea.
8: And so the way we looked for an idea was this. On these commutes that we had, that was about maybe an hour each way to and from Sunnyvale where the office was, uh, we would brainstorm ideas.
7: They had no preconceived criteria for what kind of product they wanted to sell, but they did know one thing. It had to be an e-commerce business. And that was clear because at the time, one man was making some noise in that arena.
4: Hi there, who are you? I'm Jeff Bezos. And what what is your claim to fame? (laughs) I'm the founder of Amazon.com.
7: By the summer of 1997, all eyes were on Jeff Bezos and his e-commerce startup, Amazon.com. The company
4: was conceived in the spring of 1994. I came across a startling fact. In the spring of 1994, web usage was growing at 2300% a year. I have to keep in mind uh, human beings aren't good at understanding exponential growth. It's just not something we see in our everyday life. But things don't grow this fast outside of petri dishes. It just doesn't happen. And when I saw this, I said, okay, what's a business plan that might make sense in the context of that growth? I made a list of 20 different products that you might be able to sell online. I was looking for the first best product. And I chose books for lots of different reasons, but one primary reason. And that is that there are more items in the book space than there are items in any other category by far. There are over three million different books worldwide in all languages. And when you have this huge catalog of products, you can build something online that you just can't build any other way.
7: To entrepreneurs that were paying attention, Jeff Bezos was uncovering an extraordinary business opportunity.
4: What really is the case is that we know 2% about all this stuff that we will know 10 years from now. This is absolutely the Kitty Hawk era of e-commerce and e-merchandising.
7: Again, Mark Randolph.
8: All I wanted to do was sell something on the internet. And the internet was pretty new. It was probably five years old. E-commerce had just started. Jeff Bezos' Amazon was only selling books, if you can imagine a time like that. But my career earlier on was a direct marketing guy and a catalog guy and a mail order guy. And so I immediately saw how powerful the internet could be for selling something. So I wanted to sell something on the internet. And the other criteria I had is I wanted it to involve personalization, because I saw the internet as being this amazing tool for delivering a custom experience to each individual user. So that was where it
7: started. Mark and Reed bounced around a bunch of ideas. How about personalized shampoo for a customer's specific hair type, they thought. That one got thrown out. Custom-formulated dog food for your furry buddy. They tossed that one out as well. And then one of
8: the equally crazy ideas was renting video by mail. And that came because we looked at Amazon and went, wow, these guys are doing books. What other huge categories are there that we could bring onto the Internet? And we said, maybe we could just sell movies. And I went, nah, you know, commodity. But video rental is interesting.
7: At the time, movie rentals were distributed using VHS cassette tapes, which were about the size of a regular hardcover book. And it was a massive industry.
8: This was an $8 billion category, but locked up by Blockbuster. It's one on every corner.
7: Regardless, Reed Hastings liked the idea. He'd once gotten a $40 late fee when returning a movie to Blockbuster, the VHS movie rental chain at the time. The experience left a bad taste in his mouth. He was excited about the idea and decided to do a little market research.
12: And I ran to one of my favorite venture capitalists and told him how we were going to rent VHS cassettes by mail. And it was a a $10 round trip because it's $4 to mail a VHS.
7: That's Netflix co-founder Reed Hastings.
12: He looked at me and he said, you know, you're a good engineer, but you have no idea what you're doing.
7: If the cost of shipping the video's round trip wasn't enough to kill the idea, VHS cassette tapes were fragile and cost about $100 a pop. Shipping breakage alone would likely erase all of their profit margin. So they abandoned the idea. The two continued to brainstorm. Nothing else was rising to the top. Then, about a month or two after they'd abandoned the movie Rental by Mail idea, Reed Hastings caught wind of a new technology.
12: And then someone told me about DVD, which had not yet then launched, and how it was a CD. We heard about
8: this thing called the DVD, and it was brand new. It was in Test Market. And it was going to be a thin disc about the size of a music CD. And that gave us this idea that maybe this could be the key to unlocking an idea we'd already thought of and rejected. That we could mail DVDs to people in the US mail. And so rather than thinking about it, rather than going to work and writing a business plan, or rather than going home and working on a pitch deck or something stupid like that, we go, let's just figure out right now, whether the basic tenet of this idea is viable. And so we turned the car around mid-commute and drove back down to Santa Cruz and went and looked for a DVD. But of course, there's no DVDs available. It's in Test Market in only a few cities. So we decided to settle on buying a used music CD from a record store right down the street down there in Santa Cruz. And then we went two doors down and bought a little envelope, like a little pink gift envelope you'd put a greeting card in.
12: And I weighed it, and it weighs, you know, 0. 0.6 of an ounce, so you could mail it for one stamp. And so I stuffed a bunch of CDs and he put them, mailed them to myself, and then I had to wait for 24 hours to see him come home, to see are they going to be all shattered in a bits, along with my idea. And then, you know, the next day at three o'clock, the postman arrives and I rip open the envelopes and the first one's in good shape and the second one's in good shape and the third one's in good shape. And I'm like, this sucker is gonna work.
8: And the next day when Reed stopped to pick me up to ride to work, all he had to do was hold up this little envelope with an unbroken CD in it that had gotten to his house in less than 24 hours for the price of a stamp. And that's kind of the moment we said, wow, this idea might work. And Reed wrote a check for uh, $1.9 million. I went out fundraising for an additional $100,000 to try and get other people to buy in to at least give us some sense whether the idea was a valid one or not. And we raised $2 million in all. I rented a small office, an old bank building up in Scotts Valley, just north of here, dirty green carpeting. It had a vault in the corner. I hired about a dozen people and then we spent six months building this simple e-commerce website. I mean, the type of website that you know, you or anybody could probably build in about six hours. So six months later, I was April 14th, 1998. We turned the switch and Boom, we're live.
12: And uh, that was the beginning of Netflix, as I thought. We could mail DVDs, you know, around the planet.
7: The two were about to take on the Goliaths of the storytelling industry. They knew close to nothing about the entertainment business. And that was a stroke of luck, because ignorance is a necessary ingredient when taking on the near impossible.
10: Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Do you want to hear Red Pilled America stories ad-free? Then become a backstage subscriber. Just log on to redpilledamerica.com and click join in the top menu.
0: Backstage subscribers also get ad-free access to our brand new video podcast called Fam Boogie. Fan Boogie is the place where we help you bypass the entertainment gatekeepers. We talk about pop culture, woke Hollywood, drama in the media, and great movies, TV shows, and podcasts, all as we guide you towards content that the Hollywood gatekeepers try to bury. Go to redpilledamerica.com right now and click join in the top menu.
7: Join today and help us save America one story at a time.
0: Welcome back to Red Pilled America. I'm Patrick Karelchi. So on April 14th, 1998, Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings launched Netflix, a DVD movie rental-by-mail e-commerce business. At the time, no one believed their company could survive. Less than 1% of households owned a DVD player, and they cost a mini-fortune, nearly $600. And perhaps even worse, Blockbuster and Hollywood Video dominated the movie rental industry. So they had to come up with a plan to overcome these mammoth obstacles. Again, Gina Keating, author of Netflix, The Epic Battle for America's Eyeballs.
11: Their idea was, we're going to recreate a video store online. And we're not just going to put up pictures and get you to order it. We want to make it like the experience that you have at a video store.
8: We launched. We had maybe $100,000 that first month. Okay, so it's a million-dollar run rate and we're going, oh my gosh, a million dollar run rate. We have made it. And then you go, how big is Blockbuster? A single store does about a million dollars. But there's 9,000 stores. I mean, this company's doing $6 billion a year. It's just the idea that you're ever, you're ever gonna take that on is just like absurd. It took us a year and a half to kind of find the business model that actually finally would unlock this. And the business model that finally unlocked it was a combination of two things. It was this no due dates, no late fees, keep the disc as long as you want model, and
0: subscription. Mark believed that people would be willing to pay a monthly subscription to get access to their library of movies, and customers could keep the movies as long as they wanted, with no late fees, the thing that people hated most about Blockbuster Rentals. Now in the beginning, Netflix co-founder Reed Hastings played more of an investor's role. He went off to make a difference in the world of education, and left Netflix CEO Mark Randolph to deal with the day-to-day of this new venture. And Mark was about to put his fascination with direct marketing to work. Again, Gina Keating.
11: So they literally went into the video stores and looked around and tried to figure out like, do the the wall? How do we recreate the wall with the new arrivals? How do we do the guy that will tell you at the desk what you should watch? If you like this, you will like this. Try this.
0: Mark wanted to create a user interface that basically doubled as a market research tool.
11: And they made sure that that user interface was loaded with ways to watch the people who went on that site. So every single thing that you did, they were testing, and not everybody saw the same interface. It was different interfaces for different places.
0: And this notion wasn't just a random shot in the dark. Amazon.com was having extraordinary results with their own recommendation algorithm, and the media was taking notice. A while ago, I bought a few books from Amazon
10: this time, after I logged on, the computer greeted me back, welcoming me
4: by name. Is this you? That's me. That's you. That's me. Okay. Uh-huh. The computer also remembered my
8: past orders, and after comparing me with other customers who'd bought the same books, it calculated which new books I might like to buy.
4: The Untouchable, The Comfort of Strangers, Death in Summer, Breakfast on Pluto, I Married a Communist. That's awfully good. I mean, frankly, that's so very good,
10: because I've already bought two of those books in bookstores.
0: It was becoming clear that an e-commerce outfit could have unprecedented access to the likes and desires of its customers. And in the case of Netflix, they even had an advantage over Amazon in this area. Again, Gina Keating.
11: Netflix has a really specialized platform and they track their customers really closely. And with Amazon, they don't, I mean, even though, yes, they have that recommendation algorithm as well, it's for a lot of stuff, you know. And you go to Amazon for a lot of different youth occasions, right? You're not always buying for yourself. Whereas with with Netflix, you always pretty much are. It's like I'm picking a movie for me and this behavior is me. But with Amazon, it can be, oh, I'm buying a one-time present for my friend's two-year-old or something like that.
0: The recommendation algorithm that Netflix was building was even superior to Amazon's. And they would need it to be, because Netflix was about to be attacked from every angle imaginable.
7: Coming up on Red Pilled America.
11: At every juncture where they had to make a decision about where the entertainment industry was going, they were right and the studios were wrong.
12: Well, BlackRock has been the leader and in some ways the ringleader of all of Wall Street in pushing something called ESG investing. But really what ESG is, is an excuse for Wall Street to push politics into corporate America. They can push in their own environmental policies. They can push in social and governance policies that could never be achieved at the ballot box.
9: I want everyone in this audience to know that even though the media frames this, that it's me versus that community, it's not what it is. Do not blame the LBGTQ community for any of this. This has nothing to do with them. It's about corporate interests and what I can say and what I cannot say.
5: So, this ESG stuff is really being utilized to
9: control society.
7: Red Pilled America is an iHeartRadio original podcast. It's produced by me, Adriana Cortez, and Patrick Horelci for Inform Ventures. Now you can get access to our entire back catalog of episodes and our behind-the-scenes podcast by becoming a backstage subscriber. To subscribe, just visit redpilledamerica.com and click join in the top menu. That's redpilledamerica.com and click join in the top menu. Thanks for listening.